And welcome to CJSW 90.9 FM, broadcasting live in Treaty 7 territory. The home of the Nitsitapi, or Blackfoot, of Siksika, Gainai, and Pagani. The beaver people of Tsutsina and the Stony Nakoda of Morley, which includes Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We're also walking in the footsteps of Métis Region 3. And we proudly honor everyone who calls Treaty 7 home. And remember, we are all Treaty people. Samyan, producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. Drawing from the examples of Snowden and Assange, the manifesto of the current contemporary hacker scene has become privacy for the weak, transparency for the powerful. Privacy uh, and transparency being too often overlooked, but really very fundamental conditions for a functioning democracy. Privacy guarantees autonomy and security in one's personal sphere and thoughts, and transparency is the only antidote to misguided or corrupt governance. That's Maureen Webb, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Maureen Webb on hackers and democracy. The digital age has given birth to hackers who carry out cyber attacks on our personal data, on pipelines, energy grids, and meat processing factories. On the other hand, there are, can I say, good hackers who promote democracy by practicing the sharing of software, open sourcing, and securing the free flow of information. Maureen Webb, who has studied and written about these democracy hackers, says they are making some of the most important contributions to preserving our liberal democratic tradition in the 21st century. Confronted with concentrations of power, mass surveillance, and authoritarianism enabled by new technology, Hackers are trying to build out democracy into cyberspace. They have been developing tools for civilian encryption and privacy. They've fought for transparency, a fact-based discourse, and accountability, all critical for democracy. Our guest today is Maureen Webb. She's a labor lawyer and human rights activist. She's taught national security law as an adjunct professor at the University of British Columbia. She's the author of Coding Democracy, How Hackers Are Disrupting Power, Surveillance, and Authoritarianism. She spoke in Vancouver, British Columbia on March 31st, 2021. The moderator of the event is Professor Samir Gandesha, Director of the Institute for the Humanities at Simon Fraser University. And now, Maureen Webb. Coding Democracy reports on a phenomenon in the political landscape that many have been missing. The rapid spread of hacker culture and its potency to disrupt the concentrations of power, mass surveillance, 
and growing authoritarianism that have become the defining features of these first decades of the 21st century. And in this sense, hacking is a new kind of social activism, which is all about distributed power, distributed decision-making, and distributed democracy. Coding democracy alludes to a hacker thesis that Larry Lessig of Harvard Law famously expounded on, the idea that code is law. That is, that in a world of ubiquitous computing, the self-executing nature of code will largely determine our relationships and rights, and even undermine constitutional guarantees if we don't pay attention to it. So the title suggests that computer code, more than law, is going to determine the kinds of societies we live in whether and whether they end up resembling democracies at all. But the title is also meant to place agency very much in the hands of people. The book is, uh, it does not take a utopian or deterministic view of technology. So coding democracy also means what do citizens need to set in place uh, in the digital age to make democracies work? How can societies hold on to and build out democracy in the digital age? As a constitutional lawyer, I've been concerned about uh, the erosion of democratic norms since 9-11. In 2007, I wrote uh, this book, Illusions of Security, um, Global Surveillance and Democracy in the Post-9-11 World. Uh, It was published six years before the Snowden revelations about domestic and global spying in the U.S., uh, and predicted much of what his leaks revealed about the scope of the surveillance and its dangers for democracy. As a lawyer, I kept thinking that our constitutions in the West would be strong enough to roll back abuses once they were uncovered. But as time went on, I began to realize that this was not going to happen. Looking at the pervasive illegality that states and corporations were engaged in and their uses of digital tech the inability of existing legal regimes to govern their activity, uh, it it was manifest that the law was collapsing. I came personally to grapple with the fact that code more than law was setting the norms we were now living by. The question occurred to me, who controls code? You know, really a struggle is taking place right now to build the coded environment around us. Ordinary users, computer users, and citizens are at the mercy of the code makers. And hackers are shamans in this space. I, of course, was familiar with the negative stereotype of hackers as dangerous nihilistic elements in society. Uh, And, of course, there's that threat out there, and it's not to be minimized. But this is only part of the whole hacker story. I knew enough to believe that hackers might also be vital disruptors in the emerging digital environment with its dystopic anti-democratic tendencies. In the balance of my time, I would like to dig down and try to tell you why I think hackers are making some of the most important intellectual and practical contributions to preserving our liberal democratic tradition today. Uh, But first, I would like to um, break this uh, lecture up a bit and and give you a short reading from the book. The reading that I've chosen pertains to the city of Berlin, um, a city which, uh, you know, has many lessons to teach us about concentrations of power, surveillance and authoritarianism. Uh, in the 20, from the 21st, the 20th century, 
and um, also a city through which many of the contemporary hacker stories have intersected. And the book begins with a reverie on the place and its relation to hacking. In Berlin, Berlin still has many bombed out lots. If you peer in behind the mesh fences, you see deep craters that sink precipitously under a cover of decades old trees. These holes seem to perforate the psyche as well as the landscape of the city. Some are the size of city blocks, some the size of small neighborhoods, and some are just green spaces where large tracts of city and inhabitants have ceased to exist as geographic facts. In photos of the post-war period, the Reichstag building is often visible, with Germans picking their way around its large, defeated hulk on foot and on bicycles, the road a track of mud. The seat of German democratic government in Berlin, the Reichstag was notoriously set on fire in 1933, then scorned by Adolf Hitler, he never used it, and badly bombed by Allied planes. The Germans left it unreconstructed until well into peacetime, living with its wreckage until it was finally patched up for use in the 1960s and fully renovated in the 1990s. The dome of the renovated Reichstag echoes the burned out, twisted dome of the old building and is encased in glass, a symbol perhaps of both contrition and transparency. Walking around the bomb sites, the broken wall, and the sooty, uncared for imperial buildings of Berlin, a visitor might wonder whether these two values of, two values, contrition and transparency, can exercise the dark history of the place, which in the 20th century went through multiple paroxysms, two wars of aggression, wild excess and inflation, mass deportations and murder, totalitarian surveillance, and a grim physical division. Despite a new German narrative of economic recovery and openness, Berliners still live amid the ruins of their elites' many bad decisions. They tend to be people with few illusions. It's no coincidence that a strong hacker culture has taken root here and flourished. All right, now, I'm going to tell you why I think hackers are making some of the most important contributions to preserving our liberal democratic tradition in the 21st century. And I think a good place to start is to ask, what is the Western liberal democratic tradition? Liberal Democrats, Western liberal Democrats, might say that democracy involves at least three things. The first is the idea of popular sovereignty. Democracy means government is answerable to the people. Politically sovereign people are free people, and governments that consistently fail to carry out the wishes of the people, either because they are captured by class or corporate interests or because their technocrats uh, take important issues off the table, are not democratic, but arguably tyrannical. Liberal Democrats might say that the second thing a democracy involves is mitigating the domination of some over others. Uh, at, at the very least, this means that the majority rules, but minorities are protected. Powerful interests are regulated and not allowed to run roughshod over the less powerful. And in the same vein, a belief in the equal dignity and worth of each individual is central to the concept of liberal democracy. Freedom must be enjoyed by all, 
not just by the strongest. And this is achieved through institutional means such as a bill of rights, the separation of powers, regulation, and social norms. And finally, Western liberal Democrats might say a democracy involves sharing a commonwealth. Uh, As U.S. historian Gordon Wood has observed, republics demand more from their citizens than monarchies do. They are not held together by trains of dependencies and inequalities supported by standing armies, religious establishments, and a dazzling array of titles, rituals, and ceremonies. Rather, democracies are ordered on the virtue of their people. And one thing they demand of citizens is uh, that they place a moral value on social cohesion and the common weal. So these, uh, this con- these constellations of ideas correspond roughly to the great organizing principles of the Enlightenment, liberté, égalité, and fraternité. And that tradition, I think we all know, is in trouble. Uh, historically, democracy has been based on the nation state. And in maps of di- the digitally networked world, the nation state is looking increasingly irrelevant. Networks don't keep borders, and they intensify complexity. Often they intensify concentrations of power and value extraction. Even if nation states had the will, and in the neoliberal era they have have not had this will, um, there may be little that they can do about these negative network dynamics. And indeed, network utopianism and neoliberalism uh, these two um, ideologies that have politically dominated the last few decades would have us surrender ourselves to, to the power of networks, the tech, and the creative destruction of it all. But after 40 years of creative destruction, people are justifiably beginning to um, wake up and begin to question where surrender leads us, and they are rebelling. So for Democrats like myself, the, the, the current crisis in governance, which is so very obvious in the United States, but, but even in Canada, I, I think there are signs of it. Um, the, this current crisis in governance is profoundly dismaying. We know that we need new theories of political economy to replace neoliberalism. Um, and we know that we need new social experiments to discover them. We know we need to invent new ways of democratic being in the digital age. And this is exactly the project of the contemporary progressive hacker scene and the broader hacker movement. Uh, Let me give you a, a short history about how hacking has evolved to take on this project. Hacking didn't begin in Europe. Uh, It began in the United States at MIT in the 1950s around early mainframe computers uh, with young programmers who developed an ethic that journalist Stephen Levy observed and summarized in his famous book, Hackers, Heroes of the Computer Revolution. And broadly speaking, the central tenet of the hacker ethic is the hands-on imperative. This is the idea that one should be able to take systems apart to study and interrogate them, to modify and repurpose them, and to share one's modifications. This hacker's ethos with its hands-on imperative had a profound influence on digital technology since the early days. Uh, Hackers were original innovators in Silicon Valley, uh, and they've made an immense contribution in the development of free software. That is code that can be studied, questioned, built upon, repurposed, and shared. 
um, free software is a philosophy uh, and a practice. Uh, and free and open software have really become the backbone of the digital world. It runs on most of the internet servers, on most of the world's supercomputers, on the New York Stock Exchange, on the platforms of Google, Facebook, and Amazon, and those of many governments. And widely, it seemed to be superior to uh, code that is not produced with this philosophy and with commons-based production. Hackers were key players in the Arab Spring and the Occupy movement. And since the early 2000s, there's been this exponential growth of the progressive hacker scene in which citizens and hackers have been working together to guarantee citizens' privacy, to bring transparency and accountability to those in power, to realize the social and economic goals of Occupy in the digital era, and to upgrade democratic processes themselves. And of course, two of the most momentous stories in the short history of hacking are those of Julian Assange and Edward Snowden. Uh, Assange's WikiLeaks, which published leaked information about states and oligarchs that ushered in an age of unprecedented transparency in, into global politics, and Edward Snowden, who revealed the extent to which you, the U.S. is violating privacy around the world. And finally, in the last decade or two, there's been a, a fascinating mainstreaming and institutionalization of hacking and hacking experiments in places like Harvard, MIT, and Stanford. Uh, that underscores the rising significance of the phenomenon. This mainstreaming has garnered new respectability and resources for hacking experiments and has had both positive and negative effects. The ideas that hackers have been developing over the past three decades or so of privacy and transparency adapted to the digital age, of net neutrality, of free software and commons-based production, of trust busting adapted to the digital age and data self-determination, and the tools they've been developing to secure these could be as important to a new age of democracy as the great organizing principles, liberty, equality, and fraternity were to the Enlightenment era of democracy. We're talking about a serious systems upgrade here. So let me unpack these digital age democratic principles for you. First and second are the principles of privacy and transparency adapted to the digital age. Drawing from the examples of Snowden and Assange, the manifesto of the current um, contemporary hacker scene has become privacy for the weak, transparency for the powerful. Privacy uh, and transparency being um, too often overlooked, but really very fundamental conditions for a fun functioning democracy. Privacy guarantees autonomy and security in one's personal sphere and thoughts. And transparency is the only antidote to misguided or corrupt governance. So where there has been the growth of surveillance capitalism and state social control through surveillance, big data, and algorithms, hackers have been developing tools for civilian encryption and privacy. Where there has been information wars that have nearly overwhelmed our democratic election processes in the West, hackers have fought for transparency and a fact-based discourse. The third principle that I'd like to summarize for you is the principle of net neutrality. And uh, net neutrality 
is something that ordinary users take for granted because it's built into the net, it, or it was built into the net when it was created. And it, it has a number of dimensions. The net was neutral in that the basic protocol that created it did not do anything but send information between servers. It was a decentralized network of networks with a default mode of interoperability. And this meant that it did not monitor or discriminate against content or users. Anyone could participate, move around it freely, speak and associate freely, and use it for their own purposes. In short, there were no gatekeepers. And the important thing to understand about hackers' fight for net neutrality is that it is really a fight for free communication. Uh, as hackers would underline in the digital era, if you expect to decide freely what you want to listen to, watch, receive, send, publish, create, and even think as a citizen, net neutrality is essential. Net neutrality is also about the future of media, uh, which media outlets survive, what stories get told, and which are suppressed. It's a fight about innovation and free markets because in an information economy, we depend on unfettered access to the internet. And it's a fight about political freedom because political speech and organizing take place increasingly through the internet. So where there has been commercialization and sequestering of the internet and the introduction of censorship and gatekeeping, hackers have tried to ensure net neutrality, decentralization, and interoperability. The fourth principle, hacker principle, or, or digital era democratic principle that I'd like to describe for you is uh, this principle of free software. And I'll expound on that a little, um, having mentioned it uh, just a moment ago. You know, hackers have been proselytizing the value of free software uh, for a long time. And this is, again, software that can be scrutinized, modified, built upon, and shared without restriction. And free software, people are fond of saying, doesn't mean isn't the same as free beer. It's, um, it, it doesn't mean that hackers can't charge money for their services or for their initial creation or modification of software if someone is willing to pay. But it does mean that once free software is released, there are no restrictions on it. That means that once you acquire free software, it is in your control. You can fix it, adapt it, study it pass it on, reproduce it, improve upon it. It's in your control. And this idea that code should be in the control of computer users is a bedrock principle of freedom and democracy in the digital age that, that many ordinary citizens just do not understand and uh, maybe never even heard of. Many companies want to prevent this. They don't want users to be able to study their code they want to keep it in a kind of perpetual black box. They don't want users to own the code that they pay for, but to become perpetual renters of the code. This is more profitable. They don't want users to be able to, be able to fix the code in the things they buy for, you know, from, uh, for example, from fridges to giant tractors, because this is another opportunity for profit. And um, what is known as digital restrictions management regimes that put locks on code and make it a criminal offense uh, to tamper with those locks really deprive computer users of control over their computing and of their property rights. And hackers have argued 
turn us all into serfs of those corporations. So where there is proprietary closed code and a huge shift of property rights to, uh, to software owners through digital rights management locks and related laws, hackers have fought for an end to DRM practices. And they have also, time and time again, proven the superior quality of free software, which is made through commons-based production, because it can be studied, questioned, built upon, repurposed, and shared. And that's what's made it so valuable. That's what has led to it becoming really the backbone of the digital world, as I described earlier. The fifth and sixth principles um, for a digital era democracy that, um, that need to be noted are the principle of antitrust adapted to the digital age and data self-determination. Um, and just suffice, suffice for me to say here that where platform monopolies are killing local economies, hackers are innovating ways to break these up through alternative Um, these monopolies up through alternative platforms and business models that we could build a new economy around. And where companies are colonizing humanity's data, hackers are innovating ways to ensure data self-determination. So that summary barely does justice to these hacker ideas uh, and their genealogy. Um, But I deal at length with them in the book, uh, along with other uh, ideas, um, as well as the urgent need for citizens to have a new kind of civics education, a digital era civics education, so that citizens can see the world that is rapidly changing around them as clearly as technologists and hackers see it. Uh, Because I think that the only way that citizens will be able to begin to move their resources in directions that might preserve their democracies is to understand what is the transformations that are really occurring uh, because of the, um, this transformative uh, technology, digital technology that is so radically changing our societies. In pursuit of a democracy upgrade for the digital era, hackers are building all kinds of things. And as I suggested at the outset, There are hacker experiments underway right now that I believe could fundamentally transform the current political economy. The stories I could tell you are legion, uh, but even a small selection demonstrates the effervescence of the historical moment. Many experiments are using the federated tech of the existing internet. And um, this is the basic protocol that links the internet together as an interoperable decentralized network of networks. At the most ambitious level, hackers are working on the creation of a whole new civilian internet that is privacy secure and provides self-determination over data, net neutrality, and interoperability as design features. Um, The Chaos Computer Club has been working on this project since at least 2015, and the EU has a new initiative called the Next Generation Internet which they promised will be a human-centric internet. Um, and, and the Chaos Computer Club is advising them on that. That will be a large societal project. It you know, potentially could uh, put Europe at an advantage to other societies in that it will give them an edge in the digital economy to have a really fully secure civilian internet 
that is um, designed to embody democratic uh, values. And, you know, frankly, I think that it's more likely that the EU will succeed in, in building something like this. It's a very large societal project rather than individual hacker groups. But, but a lot of the ideas are being taken from the hacker groups. And finally, Tim Berners-Lee, uh, the inventor of the World Wide Web, has a new project for a new re-decentralized web. Of course, he built the web as, as a decentralized um, technology, but it has over time uh, become more and more centralized. He calls his uh, project solid. Hackers are building pl- a plethora of leaking platforms like WikiLeaks. They have, um, to, and this is to hold governments and oligarchs accountable. They, they have an almost a comedy, um, comedic number of names, Global Spalta Leaks, Quebec Leaks, Murdoch Leaks, there's dozens and dozens. Hackers are creating cooperative platforms that allow people to exchange value outside of the platform monopolies, presently killing uh, much of our economies. Uh, these um, are both for work and for social ends. And uh, maybe the ultimate hack will be having some of the large platform monopolies that exist today being regulated as utilities. Because, you know, code can be replicated at near zero cost. So why should a handful of individuals seize the immense wealth and bounty of these platforms? Hackers are creating alternative clouds, uh, alternative data commons, that's shared data for civic or health purposes um, that are user or citizen controlled. They're creating alternative media platforms. There's um, hacker alternatives to Twitter, to Facebook, to Spotify, all with you know a range of success or failure, but the attempts are being made. You're listening to Maureen Webb on Hackers and Democracy. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can get CDs of this program and her book, Coding Democracy, How Hackers Are Disrupting Power, Surveillance, and Authoritarianism, by calling us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or you can go online to our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. We're offering printed transcripts, PDFs, or MP3s of this program at no charge. Just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. So those are the federated tech experiments. Other uh, hacker experiments are using peer-to-peer and blockchain technology. And uh, these, uh, these two uh, technologies are really in the early stages of development. So some of the experiments sound a little pie in the sky, but many are likely to be realized. And if and when they are, they have enormous potential for radically changing the political economy. Uh, Just to describe these briefly to you, um, because this is something that's important to understand in grasping the the potentialities of of some of the experiments that that hackers are are undertaking. Peer-to-peer networks uh, do not use central servers uh, like federated networks do. Instead, they use ordinary computers to process data and to deliver it to other computers without an intermediary. So, you know, within a peer-to-peer network, there may be hundreds or thousands of computers 
these are used together, their computing power is, is harnessed by the peer-to-peer technology to send information and to do the computer processing. Peer-to-peer allows one-to-one exchange of value and the creation of virtual supercomputers, uh, as I've just described, without centralized intermediaries, whether these be government, platform monopoly, legacy institution intermediaries like the stock exchange or fiat money systems. But peer-to-peer can't guarantee trust. Uh, You have to trust your peers in a peer-to-peer network and no central, because there's no central authority to intervene and enforce standards. And it's blockchain that solves the problem of trust in peer-to-peer by creating a permanent tamper-proof public ledger of transactions that is then distributed across the many computers in the peer-to-peer system. So blockchain is essentially a ledger that records transactions using mathematics. It helps to think of it as a chain, a chain that's being forged one link at a time, where each link is a mathematical equation that links to the next. And so it can't be excised from the chain or modified after it's created. The blockchain is revolutionary in that it automates trust. You don't have to trust a central provider of a service and you don't have to trust the people you are dealing with. You only have to trust the code which allows your transaction to be processed using mathematical formulas that verify its authenticity and then to be recorded on a public ledger, stored and distributed across many computers in the network. And um, hackers are using, uh, they're they're showing us how peer-to-peer and blockchain technology could potentially allow us to create self-executing contracts and whole communities of trust uh, that could replace corrupt legacy institutions. So, for example, peer-to-peer and blockchain could allow the creation of virtual supercomputers, harnessing the power of many individual computers, powerful enough to run large ventures such as alternative stock exchanges, alternative banking systems, or money systems that would rival the rigged systems we have today. Uh, And with these two technologies, hackers are also creating prototypes for innovative micropayment systems that could pay users for their attention or effectively tax financial transactions and corporations like Amazon, Google and Apple uh, that would increase the flow of money through local economies by distributing the bounty of technological advances more fairly. Hackers are engaged right now in experiments that could revolutionize democratic processes and decision-making itself. And in the second part of the book, and this is really my favorite part um, because I got to meet some amazing people, uh, I look at the experiments um, uh, that are out there uh, hacking democratic processes and decision-making. And I I traveled to Italy uh, where the Cinque Stelle movement is using a hacker platform to affect a mixture of direct participatory and representative democracy. And I spoke to a couple of MPs there uh, uh, in their in their 40s um, uh, who were just elected to parliament. And they told me uh, about their hacker-inspired politics and the particular hacker-made platform that the movement uses 
to affect this um, direct participatory and representative democracy. I traveled to Spain where ha the hacker collective XNet are using a hacker created leaking platform called Global Leaks and participation of the community. They used it and they forced prosecutors to bring nearly a hundred bankers and politicians to trial for their role in the country's financial crisis of 2008. And finally, I spoke to a, a colleague that I know through the civil liberties community in British Columbia and, and many of you might know, John Richardson, who is developing a new startup called Ethelo. He says that large groups can be very smart, smarter than the smartest experts. And he asks, how do we increase intelligence by adding more people to the decision making process? So he's working on an algorithm that could distribute influence, minimize resistance and optimize buy-in for difficult policy choices, uh, and even generate a range of policy choices uh, in order of their likelihood of being supported by a group. And they have actually sold this technology or serviced the Canadian government using this technology. And there's been words of praise from, I, I don't know, the Department of Procurement or something like that. Um, and I, I said to John, what happens if you corner the decision-making market? Um, you know, you become the next big platform monopoly for decision-making. And he said, without a beat, global democracy. And what he meant was not that, you know, he would have some monopoly like, uh, like, like Google um, oppressing everyone, but rather what he envisions is that it would be a totally open source, common operating system uh, with a pluralism of smaller systems plugged into it. So that really it would work the way that um, Linux has become the go-to operating, uh, the kernel or operating system for much of the digital world. There's actually many uh, similar experiments around the world um, like Ethelo, uh, where hackers and hacking citizens are working um, to affect distributed democracy. Uh, and they have names like Wiki Governance, Lumio, Democracy Earth Blockchain, and Council is a new one uh, in Madrid. Now, of course, uh, as our generation of activists from the, the revolutions in 1968 will know, direct democracy, participatory democracy, self-organization, shared leadership, and direct action are not new ideas. What hackers are doing is showing us what can be achieved to upgrade the quality of Western liberal democracies with these and related ideas, employing digital tech, networks, and a hacking ethic. And to the extent that they succeed, I think we'll be able to realize new levels of distributed power in our democratic governance structures. And I think that the citizens who used their votes for Brexit and Donald Trump in the last half of 2016, felt they didn't have much more than these wrecking balls to change and finally demolish the old political economy. But if Western liberal democracies can be upgraded in the 21st century, citizens might have more to work with. So the new political economy has yet to be fully created, let alone theorized. Marx was a brilliant theorist who told us a lot about industrial production and industrial era capitalism. 
his ideas are not wholly sufficient for explaining digital era production. Both technological and philosophical innovations will be needed. But what you see in the hacking experiments of the last decade is a first cut at the project. And I think it's just fascinating that this is all happening at a time when people's faith in elites to govern has never been lower and when reform through traditional mechanisms seems out of sight. Um, I see it as a new form of populism, a digital populism. And um, just like the prairie populism that innovated universal health care in Canada during the early decades of the 20th century and produced a blueprint for replacing corrupt economic institutions in the U.S. during the progressive era, this digital populism is a good development, not an ominous one. So thanks very much. That's the end of my lecture, and I'll turn it over to Samir. Thanks very much, Maureen. I would like to uh, use my uh, prerogative as chair and moderator here to uh, to get the question period up, up and running. And I think that the the place that I'd, I'd want to um, begin really is with uh, Julian Assange. I want to focus on Assange a little bit because on the one hand, I mean, he really is somebody who starts out by focusing on privacy for the weak to some extent, but certainly transparency for the powerful. But he ends up in his dump of the Democratic uh, Party emails of Hillary Clinton, and in particular, the ones between her and Podesta, the chair of her campaign in 2016. But this inadvertently has the effect of supporting the the, the Trump side. It really does seem to give Trump a a huge boost going into that last week uh, before the election. I think just in that moment, there's a kind of ambivalence in the figure of the hacker that um, I'm not sure is explored as much as it could be. I'm wondering if we could, if you could talk a little bit more about a certain kind of ambivalence in the democratic credentials, as it were, of the hacker, because they do have a kind of knowledge that lay people uh, like us uh, don't. They might be committed to democracy. However, that might be a kind of ambivalent commitment. There's a lot lot to say there. It's not that law is uh, no longer has any force or relevance. It's that it has to support whatever the the code is doing, right? So so that it's sort of secondary. The code has a very strong normative force and you have to figure out how to use law to nudge and contain or uh, or enable the normative force of code. Um, so I do acknowledge that, that hackers, you know, are engaged in a whole range of acts from the plainly dangerous and nihilistic to the highly altruistic. And that each of these acts raises difficult policy questions that will need to be dealt with by societies one free issue at a time. Um, so, for example, should you know the various hacker acts uh, be viewed as incidents of public service, free speech, legitimate protest, civil disobedience, pranksterism, or should they be treated as trespass, tortious interference? Uh, intellectual property infringement, theft, fraud, conspiracy, uh, extortion, espionage, terrorism, or even treason. How society treats hackers uh, over time will, will certainly part, be part of the dialectic of where we, where we end up. So the law has a, does have a role to play, 
On a figure like Assange, I mean, I think he's he's kind of an anti-hero, isn't he? He's made an amazing contribution to democratic governance in showing the kind of transparency that is possible in the digital era. And yet we still are left with the societal question of how do we balance freedom of the press with the need for a certain amount of privacy for institutions to operate, you know, secrecy for institutions to operate optimally. And that's a question we haven't, uh, we haven't answered yet. But I do think that whatever you think about Assange and at the last camp that I was at in Germany, the hackers themselves were extremely negative about him. Um, It was a little dismaying to see them not grasp the, the principle at stake, which is freedom of the press. And, and in the United States, uh, that is far from settled in law. Since the Pentagon Papers, um, you know, there's been a, well, before and after the Pentagon Papers, there was sort of a tradition uh, rather than a, a clear legal principle that um, governments would not prosecute or insist on revealing, journalists reveal their sources as long as journalists would vet their stories in advance with government. Uh, and the, the court in the Pentagon Papers case held that, that it would not interfere lightly with freedom of the press. But it's not, it's not yet been fully de- defined and it's in, it's in grave danger. And the Assange case will be the bellwether of that. So, and then in terms of their politics, well, the early cypherpunks in the United States were rabid libertarians, but then they created a, a, a list that became this international list for hackers. And, you know, there was everything from wobblies to Maoists on that list. Uh, and and something that uh, uh, Harry Halpin, um, a guy that worked for Tim Berners-Lee, who I met in Germany, an American, pointed out to me, is that the internet and digital tech was created with an ethos of decentralization, openness, and human rights, and that most tech people generally believe in those things. So that even, you know, the big monopolies give money to organizations like the Electronic Frontier and the Free Software Foundation. The the belief in the market might be stronger, but the DNA of digital tech is rooted in these hacker ethics and these hacker ideas of decentralization, distributed power, and freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of association. He says that, you know, deep down, most technologists you meet believe in in a rights-based kind of a framework. Thank you very much uh, for those responses. Let's go to the questions. Uh, what are the most successful or promising hacker initiatives that substantially challenge the power of big tech platforms, Google and Facebook in particular? What are the major obstacles they face in these initiatives? Well, that that's almost like an essay question. Um, and the first thing that came to my mind, Andrew, one of your own initiatives, which is I, is IX Maps, I think it's called, where Andrew and his uh, colleagues are are mapping uh, where the physical infrastructure of the internet is, so that we can understand when uh, we send a, an email that you know could just be down the street from the University of Toronto to a colleague uh, who lives nearby, that sometimes it goes straight there, but sometimes it goes all the way down to Milwaukee or some other big switching station in the, in the infinite uh, internet structure. 
and and how kind of arbitrary that structure is, how it's been built as a patchwork over time. Uh, it started uh, often with with public efforts that were then taken over by private interests. So now we have a largely private infrastructure. And so we don't know, for the most part, where our data is even going. We, we haven't even mapped it. And that was really important during the uh, post 9-11 years, where if your data uh, goes down to the United States, it's subject to the USA Patriot Act. So that's, there's an, a beautiful example of a hacker project. And obviously it has some you know, big challenges because how do, you, how do you map something as complex as that patchwork that is the physical infrastructure of the internet? How can liberal digital democracy initiatives uh, safeguard against state-directed hackers uh, of foreign powers? Yeah, that's getting into the cyber war area, uh, which is is not an area of my expertise. Um, I do say some things about Russian troll farms and the approach to disinformation and information dysphoria of the Putin regime. We're, we're not only on a new frontier, the electronic frontier. Um, we are, I don't know, we're, we're in this multidimensional space right now. Um, and when quantum computing comes on, there's no saying what what's going to happen. So, you know, I, I think when you mentioned how when Julian Assange drops a, a, a giant uh, leak of information, it has an inordinate impact beyond anything we, we, we would have imagined in the analog world. Uh, but when computing becomes as powerful as quantum com- computing and we have a, an ar- essentially an arms race, I mean, there's a, a struggle to build the coded world around us. You know, it's, it's foreign actors. It's our own governments. It's private companies. And the hackers are almost these hobbyists who, who do this altruistic work in their spare time to try to help citizens and affect their own ideals um, in the world. But the odds, are, the odds are enormous. That's what I would say about the whole landscape with cyber warfare, putting that into context. One of the issues that worry us non-experts is the tendency for democracy to be equated with anyone being able to say anything about anything, leading to the phenomenon of internet bullying as well as undermining any sense of knowledge is requiring discipline and effort. Uh, You began to speak about coding strategies uh, to address these issues, and I wonder if you could say more about this in the context of radical social alternatives. There's a lot of um, discussion right now about whether we should be looking for tech solutions um, to the problem of false news, truly false news, and generally, more generally, information dysphoria where you have micro-targeted political advertising, for example, that like, like Cambridge Analytica uh, did in, in the UK before the Brexit vote and in the United States. I, I think that, you know, that there's lots of work to be done uh, still to, to gauge the impact of the technology in influencing people. But I feel very strongly as a liberal Democrat that we ought not to go down the route of censorship. I think that's a betrayal of liberal democratic ideals. And I think that there are other solutions that we can look to. More tech solutions are going to end up being opaque 
they're going to end up being in the hands of platform monopolists um, in the private sector. And why would we hand them that very important role in society? And they're just going to come with their own set of issues. I think for some problems, the, 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 the solution is outside of tech. And I would, uh, I would agree with a scholar like Timothy Snyder, um, who talks about tyranny and authoritarianism. And um, one of the points that he makes is that we maybe use our, our, our digital technology too much for political discourse, for political connection, for social connection. We need to get off these devices and we need to run for government. We need to volunteer in our local community centers. We need to talk to people that disagree with us uh, politically. Um, I think this is one of the things that's happening in the pandemic, of course, is exacerbating it, that, that, that we don't talk to each other anymore. We do not talk to people that have different points of view, uh, political points of view and experiences from ourselves. And so our views are never tempered. And then they are radicalized even more by the technology. So there's, there's some responsibility on, on the part of citizens. I don't think we can put it all on tech. There were many people who would, would consider themselves to be on the left who cheered Twitter when it blocked uh, Donald Trump um, without any sense of, well, hold on here. What are the implications of this, that it, this might actually affect us? So yeah. it's very troubling. Greg Gerber, uh, you spoke about blockchain as a disruptor. Can you comment on the disruptive applications we might um, expect? For example, crypto payments and blockchain um, mediated voting systems, medical passports and other applications. We see governments working to regulate and limit the autonomy of blockchain. How might we mitigate the loss of trust in these technologies as a result of centralization? It's a double-edged sword uh, on the one hand because it's, it's used with peer-to-peer technology and so it allows people to make transactions one-to-one without an intermediary. So that means that you could make payments without involving banks or fiat money systems, and that could be done for criminal purposes, or it could be done to avoid the existing legacy systems that are rigged against the ordinary citizen. You could do uh, property transactions in a country that has a you know, a failed state or, or, or recurring failed governments and a, and a very poor record of property. Um, and that could be very beneficial. Uh, you could, you know, buy and sell things outside of the monopoly platforms. Once you start thinking about blockchain in, in sort of ideal, optimal uses, uh, it, 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 it's just mind-blowing because, you know, you could can do almost anything doing an end run around the big corporation or the bad government or the rotten legacy institution. However, on the other hand, blockchain could become this really maniacally bad instrument of surveillance because it creates this permanent unalterable ledger. It could be that anything that you do could never be denied. It would be recorded forever in history that you uh, went to this website or you transacted, let's say, in a cashless society. You couldn't, you couldn't uh, do anything financial without the government surveilling you. I do recognize that none of this is simple. And, and, and I don't put anything forward as purely utopian. I'm just saying that we need a new political economy. It's already being built around us. It looks 
really authoritarian and unequal and intrusive. How can we envision something different and how can we trip the change that needs to happen? That was Maureen Webb on Hackers and Democracy. She spoke in Vancouver, British Columbia on March 31st, 2021. Maureen Webb is a labor lawyer and human rights activist. She's the author of Coding Democracy, How Hackers Are Disrupting Power, Surveillance, and Authoritarianism. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 35th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program, Maureen Webb on Hackers and Democracy, and for her book, Coding Democracy, How Hackers Are Disrupting Power, Surveillance, and Authoritarianism, just call us at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. We're offering printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program at no charge. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Special thanks to Samir Gandesha. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Buddy Wolfleg from Iron Tusk. You're listening to CGSW 90.9 FM, broadcasting from Calgary, Alberta, the traditional territories of the Blackfoot and the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Siskiya, the Bigani, Kainai, Tsutina, the Stony Nakoda First Nations, and the Métis Nation in Region 3.